0: We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond Companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price... It's not today's price.
1: And we're live. So welcome to the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm lucky to be joined today with the HR heretics themselves, Nolan and Kelly. What's up, guys?
2: What's happening?
1: What's up, CJ? So I'm going to come straight from the top ropes on this one. So forgive me ahead of time, but we got to give the people what they want. And I'm gonna give you a bit of context here. I haven't had to do this in my career yet. I'm a first year CFO, but I figure that if I stay in this startup game long enough, it will inevitably happen. So if I'm a CEO or a CFO, what's the best way to approach exiting a member of my C-suite? What's the, what's the first step I should take when I think it's time to make a move?
2: Yeah, um, listen, the first step, hopefully, is that you've been talking with that executive. I mean, that's the ideal is that the executive knows that it's not smooth sailing. Maybe you've had some disagreements or some feedback chats. I mean, these happen in different ways, but it's usually pretty direct, right? Um, so ideally that's the first step is that you're having those conversations and they're just not comfortable. And execs are usually hopefully adults at that point and they lean in like, listen, should we have a different type of conversation or not? It's not one of those surprise you're on a pip type situations. The second thing I'd say is the first step is for that CEO to talk to the board. Um, Maybe not every board member and tsunami out like wildfire, but usually an early investor or a trusted board member, they're having that conversation as a heads up and getting
0: advice. Yep. I agree with Kelly. I would also say I have a general rule of thumb, which is to treat others the way that you want to be treated. And so if you are going to terminate an exec and the decision has been made, I think it's really clear after you've been delivering feedback that in the conversation with the exec, you state, look, the decision has been made. We're going to part ways. And then the nuance really begins. But as Kelly said, if you're not communicating feedback, we're having an entirely different conversation.
1: I want to drill into what you said there, one. You you kind of framed it as a decision that was made, and now we can talk about why.
0: Is that an imperative way to frame it up? I, I absolutely think so. But to anchor on what Kelly said, you need to first be giving feedback along the way. Right. And so as is the case, it, I don't think executive departures are that much different than regular employee departures. Okay. And so when you are terminating somebody, you don't walk into that conversation expecting to, like, come to a different outcome. You're Mm -hmm. walking to that conversation with a decision being made. And then it's, hey, how do we frame the comms plan? Let's talk about compensation. Uh, Let's talk about the transition period. There's a ton of nuance there. But the first step is, is after we have delivered feedback, we have made a decision, we clearly communicate the decision to that person, and then work through everything else.
2: There's three kind of points on a continuum no pun in my opinion how this happens in my experience right the the first one cj is is after you know again after the skies haven't been clear and sunny for a little bit i mean everyone kind of can can see that feel that um that executive might lean lean in and say look cj what's what's the deal here is this not working out like am i gonna get fired like they will just lean in and ask the question which is great the second is if those two come to a conclusion together, ideally, like this isn't the right thing, let's focus on the how now, the comp, the comms, right? That that is the best because it it's not as stressful, it's not as time boxed or time bound, and they work together on that plan. And then the third is when that executive just needs a two by four over the head, and that is where you see like the quick, like rip and replace and everyone's frantically going around the comms plan and that's the worst because it's like no huddle offense at that point is usually more disorganized and very stressful
0: yeah molly graham told us this kelly and i actually I, i this is my philosophy as well which is the best way to terminate somebody is for them to quit that's correct and that means you've been delivering a ton of feedback they know exactly where they stand and they could just opt out of the company I've actually found in most cases, I'd say 80% of the time for me, the employee ends up quitting. And to Kelly's point, that two by four is very, very rare and actually shows that somebody lacks complete self-awareness if you are delivering legit feedback along the way.
1: Can I offer a potential fourth one? And this is from just the outside. I've observed a really hard one and why I asked, I think no one around, is it a discussion versus a decision? And that's when the company is doing really well, but growth is outstretching talent and you need to bring in someone more senior, not necessarily that the person hasn't done a good job. Let's say they've gotten the company $10 million and they're really proud of that or 15 or 20, whatever it may be. But you need the next 18 months of growth leader for that position. It's a slightly more nuanced example, but have either of you had to deal with that kind of tricky situation where it's more... A result of success and failure.
2: For sure. I usually with someone like that, and they're great, you want to keep them. Mm. You want to retain them and have them stay within the organization. Usually they get layered, right? Underneath a new leader. And that that's either someone's like, I'm in and I I see that opportunity, or sometimes the ego gets in the way, or it's not explained very well and they opt out. Right, But but that success, ideally, the world now gets bigger. So it's not that their role gets smaller. It's actually getting bigger. It's just a different structure.
0: I think that that frame is meant to be genuine, Kelly, but I think can sometimes be total bullshit. Um, and, and a lot of this, somebody once told me, first impressions with executives are everything. I think first impressions with humans are everything. And the specific example this person used is we were talking about somebody who had been layered and I was interviewing them for a leadership role on my team. They mm-hmm. said, look, this person came in pretty junior and pretty immature and then grew a ton during their tenure here. But our CEO can only remember the first conversation they ever had. And the the metaphor he used is like, it's like you show up to a family reunion and everyone's like, Oh, it's little Nolan. And you're like, I'm an adult here. Like, what are we talking yeah. about? And so, CJ, I think that the question is: um, Have we been actually delivering feedback and watching this person grow? And do we believe that they can get to the next step? And if so, then like let's deliver them feedback. Let's get them a coach or advisor. Like let's help them get there. That's a separate discussion. Versus, you're not going to make it. I've already decided we're going to layer you. That's still a decision conversation. And I think how you handle that nuance to, to Kelly's point will decide if that person stays or leaves.
1: I wanted to to go back to something that you had said, Kelly, around talking about the compensation side of things when you have the conversation with an exec who's departing. How much of that is fully baked once you go to discuss that with the exec, say what the number of months you're gonna pay them out, what's gonna happen to their stock? Is that already fully decided or is that part still part of the discussion? We know they're leaving.
2: I, this will be a good topic no this is a this is a spicy one and and there is, there is no Bring canned the spice. response Bring the heat. like there's no, there's no canned response right like some executives don't trust their freaking CEO and they're like I'm not gonna fucking resign because then I resign I get screwed I don't get and you don't get severance I don't get I don't get any of the stuff right I think that is awful and I think you know contracting through and having that discussion without the fear of getting screwed over like that's where these things happen
1: i've been Um, given that advice on two occasions by execs right wrong or indifferent they said cj never quit get you want to get fired and i said that is morbid i don't know if i want to get fired and how that feels but they said comp wise that's the right thing to do
0: well it's also true that if you end up as an exec the most likely way you leave the company is Mm. by getting fired so let me just state that. Say more on that too. <laughs> that's good. It's just, it, look, it's, it's just the reality of when you, when you ascend all the way to the C-suite, the most likely way you depart is via termination. And it's because of what you said, CJ, which is like most execs aren't going to quit because they want to make sure that they get severance. And usually exec, exec severance packages are, they can be very, very lucrative. So let me just say one thing, which is I have done this twice in my career with, with two different execs. One of my biggest red flags is when an exec pre-negotiates their severance package and they put it into their offer letter. Okay. And in both of those cases, those execs were terminated. And so I, it's, a, it's a small end count, but for me, one of my bigger red flags is when an exec pre-negotiates severance. Because it's like, well, what are we like? The whole goal is for you to be successful here, um, and then if it's not like we all act as good actors, all of us have reputations on the line, and we treat others the way that we want to be treated. But I'll tell you that that's one thing I've seen. Two of two, and count as small. But when you pre-negotiate severance, never a good look.
2: I don't agree that everyone's a good actor, though. Like I want that. Right. I'm between us two, Nolan. I'm the Pollyanna little everyone, everyone's going to be good. And like that, that doesn't always happen. And I will be honest, when I came into Pendo, they do not have this. Um, and Todd said the same thing. Well, what? why do we? What if you're not performing, we should, you know, and I agree with that. But it's not just about that. Right. If you look at what these execs are doing, they're taking a big risk.
0: It is a risk. And Everyone's these- taking a risk, though, on joining a company. It's like, it's agnostic of exec or director or senior IC. Everyone's it's taking a risk, risk.
2: It's riskier. Listen, I was a part of GitHub the first, what, X weeks. CEO, founder, out. Ah, big upheaval. Like, shit changes.
0: But it changes if you're an employee. Like, I, I don't, I, I I think execs get put on a pedestal, and I don't agree with it. And, and a lot of these, like, a lot of companies, here's a dirty secret, employment <laughs> litigation at the exec level is out of control. And a lot of times, these execs that are getting terminated are holding the company hostage with some sort of employment suit that they've made up post-termination. And what most companies do is they settle to make it go away. Like, that is absolutely happening and it happens all the time and ceos that are are listening to this are probably nodding their head in agreement because it's crazy especially the first time that you go through it but like i don't i don't agree that execs are like some special breed of person that deserve special treatment outside of everyone else in the company especially with severance
2: i agree they're not some special breed of person the other the other piece of it is if i join a new company shit hits the fan like boom two months like free four months later i'm out of a job like it arguably takes me longer to find the next right thing than an sdr that's true that that i think is what i was meaning by that risk like of course shit happens yeah but it's harder to find the it's like a more of a needle in the haystack situation than again an sdr and this shit's happening with individual contributors too, nolan like people are smart now like the the litigation
0: but is the that a kind of right? Are, are, so, are you saying that you guys pre-negotiate severance?
2: No, we don't negotiate it. It's just like, hey, if these things are to be true, not if you get fired. Like, if something happens that's out of your control, we'll help you out for three or six months
0: while you figure it out. Okay, so so kind of similar to what Netflix did then. So basically, Netflix yeah. said, hey, it's 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 top performance and if not it's a generous severance package and everyone gets this the, generally the same severance package that's kind of what you're saying that's correct that makes sense i'm torn because i see i see both
1: sides in the sense that let's say i'm an SDR i get fired i have a lot less savings to fall back on than an exec who's been doing it for 10 years and can afford to take a break but at the same time the surface area for me to have a soft landing at another company is a lot wider in the sense that there are more sdr roles out there than there are cmo roles at series c through d companies in the fintech space
2: so two things a lot of ic's do get severance so it's not like they don't get a padding like and two second, weeks or four weeks or six weeks. i mean but i would also challenge that execs have money <laughs> like,
1: yeah i got this isn't it funny that they get kids the biggest Kids eat a lot, payouts? CJ. Yeah, kids they get the kids. biggest payouts, but they have the most money. It's like when you get famous and they start comping you for dinner. At least it's what I hear. And it's like, well, I can finally afford this now, and people are giving me free stuff.
2: Look, I I, I, I do agree. I, I think there are execs out there that are like, give me the sun, moon, the stars, and think about all this shit. And it has gotten out of control. I think actually the macro environment has helped like, control a lot of that and dumb it down because it, it was getting to be pretty – pretty crazy
1: when you say pretty crazy and we can keep this off the record if if you two want and you don't need to say what company or position it relates to but what's the largest golden parachute you've ever seen
2: i've seen 12 months before
1: oh that's not that bad
2: well if you want to get really spicy i've seen 24 months when you throw in long-term disability and all this other stuff into the mix yeah. of short-term disability so right? if but- i'm
1: making 300k as an exec 600K in cash guaranteed plus equity vesting?
2: Uh, the equity vesting is something that is not pre-done. So that, that tends to be a thing, to be honest with you. That's so a you have, it's a conversation. So there's different levers, right? There's, there's equity acceleration situations. There's t- window exercise timeline extensions there's you want to throw garden leave into the mix there's garden leave to elongate things like vesting or cliffs benefits all these things are like ingredients of a cake and each cake is a little de- the only thing that i've seen like really is is the is the severance right is the salary like everything else tends to kind of you know not deviate too far but it's not pre-done
0: they're all different levers cj is the way to think about it yes ultimately in service of the outcome. And so typically the CHRO and the CEO will have a conversation and I've had this conversation and it typically goes from my standpoint, what is the outcome we want? And if the outcome is I want them gone yesterday, then we think about different levers, if the outcome is I deeply care about this person, um, I would really appreciate them to transition the team then that comes with a different set of levers and often can include, which Kelly did not include as part of her, her toolkit. Some people stay on as advisors.
2: Mm -mm. Yes.
0: And then, and then that you could talk about equity continuing to vest and those sorts of things, but it really comes down to what does the CEO want as the first principle and then what levers are available to us and then conversations with that exec. Yes.
2: This is why it's, it's very important if you're an exec, like, to to be mature about these things, right, and and like as much as you can, and work with, not kind of push up against or flare out. I mean, so I just think, I think it's important because these things ge- generally come down to a conversation.
0: But CJ, you asked a question, and I want to answer it directly. Yeah, which is what's the biggest I've what's seen? The
1: st- what's the biggest sticker price?
0: Yeah, so not I not personally, but a friend had an exec file a uh, wrongful termination suit, and they settled for $10 That's That's a big number. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right
1: back after a word from our sponsors. How often do you see equity being accelerated upon a termination? Is that pretty rare? Is Is equity acceleration only reserved, do you think, for acquisitions? I
2: I have rarely seen equity acceleration in in exec exits. Um, Single double triggers, yes. Acquisitions, yes. Um, More commonly, the exercise window is extended, usually one to two years, which is why I have a very strong opinion on this. I I think the 90-day exercise window is shit, and I think that that needs to change. And I don't know why it hasn't.
0: I'll tell you why it hasn't. I'd love to hear it because that equity is going back into the pool and execs get the largest slice of equity and boards don't want dilution. That's why the 90 day PTE still exists today. Even after, what was it? Pinterest that went to 10 years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Airbnb went to 10 years. At Carta, we actually had we had um, your, your tenure. So like if you were there for two and a half years, you get two and a half years for your PTE. It, you know, but the, rea- the real reality is after being in these discussions, boards care deeply about dilution and specifically with exec equity which is a huge portion of that pool boards want that back in the pool
2: so funny you know it's just such a it's just so funny everything nets out because you know i'm not i've seen known so many people over the years that literally are staying for that and they're not doing much and so like, the value they're creating for these board members is, is just less than if they could just exercise some of it. Some of it goes back in and give it to someone new. I mean, it's just it's wild.
0: It does create perverse incentives for sure.
1: Wild. I love that you hit on that because Rest Invest is real in, in the valley where people will chill out. Uh, in the show Silicon Valley, Big Head is chilling on the roof and he's just resting, investing, they're grilling out every day and hanging out. Maybe that's like taking it to another extreme, but you do have people that are maybe trying 80%, 70% as hard as they were before,
0: just watching the calendar. I, I've seen it personally. Um, from my own view is like, I, I, I'm a binary person. I'm like all in or all out. And so that's like never resonated with me, uh, probably for the detriment of my own bank account. But, you know, I will say that tech is a game like we're all we're all playing a game and some people play this game to an expert level. And that is one I I give people credit who can just continue to hang around and continue to get paid, even though it's not the best thing for the company because they're looking out for their own self-interest. And I think that is a failure of the management team, specifically the CEO and the board, when that is happening and they're not doing anything about it.
1: I agree. I'm more similar to you, Nolan, know, in the sense that I'm an on and off switch and it eats at my soul just to kind of chill or, or not try as hard. Cause I'm always thinking, well, what could I be doing if I was going hundred miles per hour? Totally. Life's too short. I, I wanted to quickly define a couple things for people listening. So what, Kelly, you'd use the term garden leave. What is garden leave?
2: Yeah, so it's it's basically putting someone on life support, so to speak, right? They're, they're not working, they're not doing anything. They're, they're essentially gone, CJ, except for on the books.
1: Does it only happen for CFOs? Because I've only seen it at a prior company for a CFO. No? No way. Absolutely
2: because it, not. Because garden leave
1: is a popular term also in the finance industry within investment banking. Like if you leave one company and go to another, or if you're like a bond trader... I had a friend who was on garden leave for the whole summer and he was getting paid because they didn't want him to have, I don't know, trade secrets or something to go like to, a competitor. to a
0: competitor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's essentially a lever, another lever in the toolkit to use, right. To keep someone on ice, so to speak Okay. for a certain purpose, whether that's extension of benefits. Um, yeah. again, yeah. getting someone over an equity uh, festing, equity vesting cliff date. Um, But a lot of companies, and I agree with this, right? Like, if if there's a six-week severance policy or whatnot, someone's on three weeks of garden leave, they don't get the garden leave plus the six weeks, right? So it'll kind of eat into that severance. Okay. It gets tricky when someone's like, "I want three months of garden leave and three months of severance."
1: Doubling up. Which I've seen. What's a single trigger versus a double trigger clause?
0: Kelly, you you describe this better than me because um, candidly. I worked for a couple of CEOs who were absolutely against it. Um, and mm. so when it came up, it was always like, nope, we're not even having this conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's true. A lot of CEOs, <laughs> you shut it down. And that's <laughs> so why I'm that-
1: asking you to define it because I feel like nobody wants to talk about it, but they kind of ask for it, but
0: don't know what it means. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. My my understanding, I'll, g- I'll give you my understanding and then <laughs> CJ Kelly, like, please educate me. A double trigger is, is if, The company gets acquired or goes public and then you are terminated. There's two events that happen. A single trigger is full acceleration. Sorry, I should say full acceleration is associated with that. Full acceleration upon the event either typically being an IPO or an M&A. Yeah.
2: So single is more advantageous than double to an employee.
0: Yeah. And execs are like every exec has now been told from their friends to like ask for this. And what I found uh, working with my friends in M&A, they always tell me, Nolan, this shit doesn't matter at all because it all gets renegotiated during the M&A process. So if you're an exec and you feel so awesome that you negotiated your double trigger in, well, it turns out that the potential buyer of that company is gonna have a conversation with your CEO and your CFO and say, well, this person has double trigger, and we don't like that. And so we're not going to do the deal until you fix it.
2: For some roles, it gets renegotiated, yes. That's correct. Not all. So, And I, I don't know why the hell anyone would give someone a single trigger. It's, it's I never agree made, totally. I, I've, I've never seen it personally. It, Same. it never made any freaking sense to me. I mean, if you got it, good for you for playing the game, to Nolan's point. But I, it's just insane to me. Um, The double trigger is interesting because... Yes, it's it's via liquidity event, and then having to do with your job. But in the course of an acquisition, it's not just terminated. There's sometimes language that if your role changes in a substantial manner from before, you can you can trigger that double trigger. Um, which I've Kelly, never did seen you done. see it at Looker? No, I have not seen um, the, the role change piece of it.
0: Well, no, I mean, specifically, did you have employees that had double trigger at Looker? And then yes. what happened? Post I had it. I had a double trigger. Tell us about it.
2: Well, I mean, so and then. She's holding was, out on
0: us knowing this is what, this mean, is what we're, what we're looking ta- for. We're no,
2: <laughs> the I, it's, in, it's, it's so you have this double trigger. And then upon um, again, upon the deal going through, it was determined before that my full time role would go away along with the CFO, along with the chief legal officer. Very common. Um, and we were on three-month fixed-term contracts, which is basically like we, we are employed by Google for three months to help with transition and then are terminated. Right? I ended up staying for a year with a full-time offer. but that's Yeah, but different. did your
0: equity get accelerated?
2: So on the day the deal closes, because our jobs were deemed to go away, the acceleration
1: went through. Yes. That's dope. That's cool. It's like in the movies, how they drew it up. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Kelly, what are the most common positions to get axed? I'm a CFO. I'm guessing that's probably one of them. You yeah. don't need two CFOs?
2: No, that's one of them. Sometimes marketing, sometimes not. Not, not in the case of Looker. Her marketing team is awesome. Um, and sometimes you negotiate the fixed term, right? Like Some people are like, fixed term like i want a fixed term versus a full-time offer yeah like we we did have a lot of those folks and google was like hell no we need these people we don't have enough of this position um so it's it all it all depends
1: asking for a friend uh in in your next role would you counsel people in the c-suite to ask for a double trigger at least even if they get shot down
0: i i have a i have a good answer for this um and i really believe That there should be parity amongst executives Mm. and so instead of asking for double trigger i would ask if anyone does have double trigger and that there is parity amongst executives
2: fully agree that that's what i said listen coming in here i'm going to see everyone's stuff anyway like i don't really care what it is what is it are there double triggers are there there severance benefit plans equity parity right with your your percent ownership like, it's really important.
1: I think it should be either all of the people in the C-suite have it or no one has it because otherwise you get into these situations where, say, the CEO and CFO are negotiating for an outcome that's better for their situation
0: than everyone else. You also have this asymmetry of some people know to ask for it and, or have had it historically and come in with this like, I'm not, I'm not going to do it unless we have this as part of my deal. And other people don't know how to ask for it or have never heard of it before. And so they're at this massive disadvantage. And ultimately these people are on the same team. Totally. So I'll like my general rule of thumb is assume it ends up on the copy machine at the company and everybody can see it. Can you justify it? Yeah.
2: It's amazing to me how many, how many C level executives still they're just not savvy around things like double triggers severance benefit plans um what's your percent ownership is that how does that connect with the shares outstanding in the company and do, like what what like it's it's in, insane to me how how much this is still just kind of an enigma and it was for me for a long time and it shouldn't be so i'm glad we're talking about it
1: what about an employment agreement would you also counsel everyone going into a c-suite or vp level job to get an employment agreement, or maybe a better way to phrase that is what, what level should you start to actually ask for one at?
0: Yeah. My view on this has changed. So historically, I used to believe that like, just look at the contract and sign the contract. I am now of the belief that if you are VP and above, it is very wise for you to engage employment legal, to have them review the contract. Like we just talked about this asymmetry, legal can help reduce the asymmetry and help you figure out which questions to ask, and also point out any yellow or red flags in an offer letter. So, I think for me, VP and above, engage an employment lawyer and have them review the contract. It's just a dotting I's, crossing T's thing.
2: I I don't disagree. Um, I personally have never kind of indoctrinated the employment contract. It's more what's the offer letter? right? Are there appendices, et cetera? That, that's one thing I've never really formalized, but getting it looked at is is always
1: helpful. Is an employment agreement a noun uh, uh, in the sense that you can have an, uh, oh, I have an employment agreement. Is so what you were saying, Nolan, sounds like the verb of like, have someone review it. Uh, but I hear the term thrown around all the time. Like, oh, I, I'm not as worried. I have an employment agreement. Does that mean <laughs> Is that the pre-negotiated severance that you were referring to just at the beginning?
0: It it could be pre-negotiated severance. It could be something else. Uh, It could be addendums to the offer letter. Okay. The most savvy exec I ever negotiated with, we had a two and a half week process of redlining his offer letter. Now, again, this is somebody we ended up terminating. So (laughs) I think that says more about him. And uh, his process, so I would not use that process. And we were like, by the by, week two, we were like, "Is this seriously still going on? Like, what the fuck is happening here?" <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. It was crazy. Um, that's I learned a lot though from that process. <laughs> I'm sure, you did. I did because um, I'd never seen anyone do it before, and so you know, for me, that's where I learned. Holy shit! Like this guy is bringing you know an AK forty seven to a knife fight. And, and I actually felt underprepared from where I was sitting. And I think, so there's nuance there, but to answer your question specifically, it's typically an offer letter and like, that's what we're, that's mm-hmm. what we're bartering and discussing. And then there could be addendums, additional clauses, including severance as part of that negotiated as part of the offer letter, which then brings the holistic employment agreement.
2: Correct. That's correct. Do you know what always turned me off? And I, I just have to say it is, is when these execs come in and say, you know, from the equity perspective, right, that negotiation, it's like, I have to net like 10 million a year or I have to net, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, like, you're, you're here to make the make the fucking company money. You're here to x the price, not get you 10 million at this price. Like right. that always turned me off more than pre negotiated severance.
0: So, to take the other, I'm with you, like also annoyed me. That said, a very large VC firm that anyone who is listening to this conversation definitely knows of <laughs> actually uses that to get execs across the line. And they tell us, the internal operators, that like, oh, the, you know, for this role specifically, the way you need to pitch the equity Is that in four years, it'll be worth at least $30 million. And look, I I think all of this stuff is contextual, but I think a lot of that, a lot of those discussions, Kelly, have been coached in by VCs. And it's just, it's stupid and toxic and encourages companies to lie about their growth and their valuation as opposed to having honest conversation with people.
2: Yeah, look, I'm not surprised at that. We talked about the game of tech. like we all know, like it of course it happens. And I actually don't really care about scenario modeling. Like that's fine, right? Like CJ if I'm bringing you in and I'm giving you a 10, 15, 20, 25 per share.
1: I'm the well, one doing sc- it. I I I, yeah. do it. I I do it for that's, candidates all the time.
2: I like that, Nolan. I like seeing the 10, 20, 30 billion. I just don't like when a candidate comes in and says, I won't even fucking talk to you unless yeah. you can guarantee me $5 million a year, like starting right. now at this price. Like, yeah, that's, that's crazy. No. You haven't
1: had any value yet. You got to show like, up and you. Do haven't had
2: any fucking value. Like, <laughs> and the value is, I, lo- I want to be here. I want to build this, love the environment, and I want to be part of the reason that thing is at $30 million. Right. It's That's crazy to me.
1: Yeah, I want to walk in the door and make NBA money without putting up a shot. That's not.
2: <laughs> I mean, guaranteed different. contracts
0: <laughs> are also in the NBA, though, too, CJ. Right? So, like, yeah, that is guaranteed money, <laughs> it, it, and that's. It, I'm, I'm Kelly. I'm totally with you, um, and CJ. I think you, you described it perfectly, which is like they need to add value, yeah. in order for it to be worth something. Just in general, whenever you experience ego like that. Biggest red fucking flag, run away from yeah. it. Do not work with that person.
2: Th- there's just something so presumptuous about it that it's just like very, very tough
0: pill for me to Disconnected swallow. from reality.
1: So there this is on a spectrum, right? Of presumptuousness, if that's a word. I can't even spell that. That'd be a hard one.
2: Presumptuation. I yeah, there we go. Uh,
1: what I'm worried about is not to go to the level of no one's person who went back and forth for two and a half weeks. But I think that's why people without that self-awareness won't ask for certain clauses or a double trigger because they're worried that they're going to be perceived as greedy on day one and not be able to overcome that reputation.
2: But that's why Nolan's um, advice is spot on is, is you frame it in a way that that is authentic is what does your executive team have? If anything,
0: look, I think, leveraging your network and your friends is always helpful and is is what I get used for probably from my friends like more Mm -hmm. than anybody but to acknowledge that like that's how much asymmetry exists is like you have to like know people and call them and ask them for help which happens it's crazy that that's what has to happen and so I think the way to do it um is is to go back to what I said earlier, which is just to be genuine and just to ask questions about what does everyone else have? I'm asking just to make sure that there's parity and fairness, not to be the person who's trying to extract every scent and every potential clause that would be in my favor. It's just be a human, yes. be a good human. It's not that hard.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I usually say I don't want to come in here and like find out that I've been treated differently. I, I just don't want to worry about that shit. We got enough. If I'm gonna come in here in this role, we have enough to do. I don't need any of this coming back. I want it just off the table.
1: I think advice for people listening is to frame it and word it as what do others have in the from the lens of parity and not can I have this, can I have that? I think it then puts you on equal footing with your peers and shows that you're trying to play a team game. You're not trying to look like an outlier here. Totally. A couple hard ones here. So the first one. How does a board approach firing a CEO? What's the timeline events that usually takes place if you're not working open AI uh, for the process to be done cleanly?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd love your take nolan i I don't think it's actually that dissimilar to the exec in terms of like the mechanics and whatnot. It's a bit trickier um in terms of like the timing and how long these conversations go on. I mean they're protecting their investment, so. Removing the CEO of the company is a risk to that investment. So I don't think it's something that's done lightly. um, And I've actually never seen it except for like egregious situations.
0: I've I've personally never seen it. Um, What I know to be true is that it is an absolute last resort, especially if it's a founder CEO, given when when Benchmark and other VCs remove Travis, as Uber's CEO. And I think looking back now with the, you know, the hindsight of 2020, I'm not sure that was actually the best decision for Uber at the time. I think a lot of VCs have learned from that. I think a lot of VC reputations who have done this in the past have been tarnished Yes, because they've removed CEOs. And so I would say in, in general, it is a very rare event in which that happens. And typically when it does happen, it's it's typically like something ethical. Correct. Or or morally corrupt with the person. Yeah. As opposed to just a business decision when it has to do with the founder and CEO.
2: Accenting especially on the founder CEO to Nolan's point, like before the macro change, right? When 2016, I mean, when the money was like crazy out there, these VCs were, you know, it was a it was a founder's market. Right, and these these VCs were very careful not to ha- have tarnished reputations. They wanted to be friend of founders, friends of founders, and give a lot of leeway and a lot of room. And so that that was a trend. Now with the macro, I I, I don't know, but it is very rare. And I agree. As a last resort, look at us agreeing.
1: Yeah, this is awesome. Can we all just get along? Can't, <laughs> I, I hate I hate to paint in broad strokes here, but in your experience. Do you think founder CEOs are more successful in galvanizing a company, whether they lack some of the requisite, like maybe soft skills that you would get in a professional CEO of, of getting the company to, to, I guess, higher ground.
0: Everything's contextual. So, you know, I I've worked for two generational founder CEOs. And so my bias is going to be like, they're the best. Uh, but that said, Frank Slootman at Snowflake can prove the exact counter to that, which is, he, you know, he was hired in post-idea, post-product, and like, hey, go go now scale this thing. And so both things can be true. Uh, it just really depends on who the CEO is. But let's also be clear, CEOs are not imperfect people, regardless if they're founders. And so I think the biggest thing is is surrounding that CEO with complementary pieces and then also getting them like advisors and coaches to help them up level and scale just as you would anyone else in the organization. That was,
1: that was good. I, I feel like the whole professional CEO versus founder CEO argument is a bit biased at times because there's a lot of survivorship bias in that. You don't talk about the founder CEOs, which there are many who didn't make it to the, to the next chapter. Well, the so- majority...
0: The, ma- the majority yeah, of companies the vast fail. majority,
1: I guess, ninety yeah. percent of them that we don't talk about. So, so there is that. Um, w- when it comes to a CEO exiting, that's at the board's um, doing because their job is mainly to hire and fire the CEO. And Kelly, you'd mentioned earlier about being founder friendly in the Valley. Is that looked upon poorly if? A CEO gets fired like does that make that VC look like they're I don't know don't take money from them is it a scarlet letter to some
2: I think it I think it depends I was referencing earlier on like again 2015 20 it it kind of did right like founders did not want to be controlled right and and some of these VCs they had reputations of having a very strong hand and kind of you know, prescribing certain things or being too. And I think I, I saw it swing the other way a bit where it was very founder friendly because you didn't want to have a reputation of being like that. It's kind of like a back channel. Don't work with them. They're ugh, right. And that that was a thing.
0: The uh, you just have to look at history though, CJ. So like this used to happen all the time in the 90s and early 2000s. And then, you know, people took a step back and looked at the data and the data was like, oof we replaced the founder, we thought this company was going to go up into the right and they flatlined or died or didn't have the the ideal outcome that they wanted. Um, but then what you saw in the 2010s is what Kelly's referring to, especially at the top tier companies, founders got smart and didn't put their livelihoods and jobs into the hands of the board. They actually removed it by having super voting shares. Correct. And mm. so the board couldn't really remove them.
2: Multiple vote, Multiple votes.
0: And we're only a couple of days, you know, post Sam being departed at OpenAI. So whatever this comes out, there may be more information. But you know, one of the best takes I, I saw on Twitter was like, this is why you saw so many founders negotiate super voting shares. So the board couldn't do this to them.
1: I saw that tweet too, it was like Evan Spiegel and Mark Zuckerberg's super voting shares looking pretty good right now. Exactly. Okay, the last one I wanted to hit on. So we started the call with me asking for advice. I'm asking for advice again in a, in a different vein. So if I am in this game long enough, inevitably I could be the one who's getting fired. If I don't want to be left in the lurch and I'm getting on the phone with someone like either of you, how should I How should I go through that call?
2: Yeah, look, I, again, I think the goal is the conversation, right? It's It's referencing the blood, sweat, and the tears that you gave to that company and that founder. It's asking to be treated fairly. It's asking to be a part of the messaging plan and to help drive that plan and to have a reasonable bridge to the next opportunity. And listen, I mean, founders don't want a lot of drama and turbulence. Frankly, they're not that great at this stuff. (laughs) They don't want to spend their time on it. They're uncomfortable with it. It's like, ugh. So the easier you can make it on them and work with them, the better.
0: I would view it as a series of conversations. And as it's so first conversation is you're getting news that you're being departed. I think it's really important to act professionally, to be as non-emotional as you possibly can, and then to ask to collect your thoughts and then to have a separate conversation. Then you go away, you, you know break some glass against the wall get all of your emotion out, and then talk to friends and start getting advice. Um, and typically what that advice is going to be is, is like, hey, what really matters to you? And you have to do some deep reflection on that. Um, for some people, the comms plan really matters. I've actually come around on this. I used to believe I, d- I, did, not le- I did not love execs designing their own comms plan uh, for terminations. And I was totally wrong about that. And the reason why is because for some people, their ego is the number one thing they're optimizing for. And it's if you could just solve for that by letting them design it and then you reviewing it. Great. Like who gives a shit if they say that they're leaving on their own accord? It doesn't matter to business operations. And ultimately, I found like people always find out anyways, as it relates to comp, um, it's it's very similar to the advice that I give when somebody is negotiating an offer, which is you know, you want to hear what the company has to say first. So let them go first versus you being the person that anchors. And then using that as the starting point to then try and negotiate up uh, to ensure that you're doing what's right for yourself, and also just protecting yourself. Um, And again, it really does, you should be designing around what you're optimizing for, understanding you're not going to be able to pull all the levers you want.
2: Two, Two ads I would have there is yes on asking for multiple conversations. And with that, Like asking for this to be between like confidential until you've worked out your negotiation plan, your package, and the comms plan. Because once the fire goes out and everyone knows that CJ is going, and you have no plan or no, no, it kind of can backfire. Um, I could not agree more on the messaging. That has like been my number one thing that people have asked for is is controlling that narrative. It is it is. Pareto chart, the most important for people. Isn't that
0: crazy that that's like the same, same color. I've noticed the same thing is like, people care more about that than they do about severance. Well,
2: I mean, it's like, like we started this conversation. They got to go to the next company. There's going to be referrals, back channels. There's an email out. They got fired. That's not really helpful. Even if that doesn't go anywhere, it's in their mind from a confidence perspective. Um, Now on the flip side And I get this. I empathize. I've had CEOs that are like, fuck that. I don't want people thinking executives are walking out of here and like we're losing people. This is a performance issue or this was a violation. And I want the company to know that I want them to know we made a hard decision. So I have run up against that, which I understand.
1: I'm like going through my mind now, all these slack goodbyes that I've seen, not (laughs) knowing that it was the exact word. I didn't know that was a lever in the toolkit. I never knew people were asking for that. But you're saying it's the most common one. Let me see if I get
2: the bullseye. The common one is personal
1: time with family. Yes, it's always that. And if it's a or uh, health issues, but usually, yeah, it's personal time with family.
0: Yeah, all that shit's orchestrated. Sorry to to pop the bubble of uh, not knowing.
1: That's wild. <laughs> no Nolan one ever finds
0: out I'm like the one guy
1: who's like yeah. I didn't know that was going on behind just... the scenes.
2: <laughs> An iceberg has a below the water part.
1: Ooh, I think that was a good one to end on. Yeah. Thank you both so much for making me smarter and uh, this was a juicy one. I think people are going to like this. Awesome. Thanks
0: for the time, CJ. Thanks, CJ.
1: Thanks. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.